Welcome to The Time of Our Life, a special series from Valley Public Radio. I'm David Aus. In this series, award-winning journalist and author Mark Arax offers a special perspective on our times viewed through the lens of writer William Soroyan. This week, we're joined by Fresno writer Aris Janigian, who will read Soroyan's Five Right Pairs and The Armenian and the Armenian. Aris Janigian is the author of five novels and co-author, along with April Griman, of Something from Nothing, a book on the philosophy of graphic design. He's pursued a three-pronged life and career as a writer, academic, and following in his father's footsteps as a wine grape packer and shipper in Fresno, California, where he lives currently. He's also a cousin of our collaborator, Mark Arax. Aris, welcome. Thank you for having me here, David. And Mark, welcome. Hey, David. I'm, I'm excited about this one because this is family. This is my cousin that I'll be talking to today about Soroyan and Aris's own books and stuff like that. It'll be fun. Oh, all right. Well, let's get started. Aris, I'm remembering those days before the coronavirus when we used to sit in my backyard. I had those three apricot trees, and we'd sit at that little table, mm-hmm. and we'd be drinking our Armenian raisin moonshine made by our favorite farmer in the family. And um, we would comment on its properties, whether it was 70 proof, 60 proof, 80 (laughs) proof, whatever. I remember saying that nothing traveled faster from tongue to chest than that. And then (laughs) how did you respond? Well, it was, um, it had a hallucinogenic effect, um, but yet your mind remained amazingly still and clear Uh, amidst this sense that everything was shimmering with life and all the words seemed to be lighted up with uh, joy. It's a tremendous, uh, the best drink I've ever had, one of the best nights we've ever had was that one particular night we were were unpacking the human situation while smashed. Yeah, no, smashed, but very present. Yes. Very present, yeah. You know, the theme song of this whole series is Come On to My House. And I, I, I think that's what we were doing. Come on to my house. I'm going to give you apricots, pomegranates, raisins, and rahi. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that as well. And, you know, Saroy's stories are like gifts that are laid at your front door. Open basket brimming with oranges, persimmons, or whatever figs that he's picked. And I think that that charity of spirit, that bigness of spirit was very rare in American letters through the 20th century. And I think that he got kicked in the ass because of it by the critics. You know, they were looking for something to unpack, kind of something that required effort and that could show off their uh, intellect and theories but Saroyan never gave him those kind of stories. And I think for that reason, they kind of shoved him out of the picture later on in his life. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to explain to the reader our connection. Do you mind? No, please. So it's 1919. My grandfather is in Constantinople. Uh, just coming down from this little place in the attic where he was hiding to outlast the Armenian genocide. And these letters from your grandfather, 
start arriving. He's left earlier. He's lost his whole family in the genocide, and he's now relocated to Fresno. And he's writing these wonderful letters to my grandfather that my grandfather recalls all those years later when he was telling me his story. And they're about the fruits and vegetables of this place. You have to come see this place. You must come here. It's a new Armenia. The grapes are as big as jade eggs and the the watermelons so big that when you scoop out the meat, you can ride in them like they're boats, small boats in the (laughs) irrigation canals. So I, I guess they both had a way with words. And my grandfather was headed to the Sorbonne to study poetry. And he has a choice now, Fresno or Paris. And he decides that it's Fresno. And after 7,000 mile journey by ship and train, your grandfather is there at the depot in Fresno to meet him in his Model T Ford. (laughs) And they hang out. He drives them to the San Joaquin River where J.C. Fortner is uh, erecting the biggest fig garden ever in the world. He's planting 5,000 acres of Calmerna figs which in and of itself is a a grafting of cultures. It's the California and the Smyrna from Turkey together. Mm. And they're blowing holes in the earth because it's hard pan. And for every tree planted, they got to put down a stick of dynamite. And so they're driving in that Model T Ford. And I remember my grandfather remembering the sound of it. It was toka, 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 (laughs) toka. And pretty soon, a couple of days later, your grandpa's driving him down south to Kern County, and they end up, of all places, in Weed Patch. (laughs) So, and they start picking, you know, they're on their hands and knees. So I want you to talk about that journey kind of in psychic terms, what it meant, that that kind of Mm. grafting, and how Soroyan became the chronicler of that new land. Well, I guess we have to begin with the... uh observation that Saroyan was born here. He did not go through the genocide. His family came here before. So when he began, um, you know, writing, he was watching the first of the survivors trickle into the valley. And he has a couple of stories which give us a sense of the psychological and spiritual torment it caused him to watch these people drift in from abroad. And of course, everyone in the world knew that the Armenians had been decimated, but these were his own people. I think it created a, uh, a tremendous um, sense of burden for him to chronicle it. At the same time, he was wholly American. And he wanted to be American, and he wanted to embrace the the dynamism and the jazz and the and the flavor and the smells of America. So that combination of um, a kind of spiritual burden of lifting his people up and speaking on behalf of a humanity that had been hurt and exiled, I think imbues all of his work. Yet he never flinched from embracing the better side of the human race. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and look at how it got passed to us. I mean, in my work, your work, 
we have dealt with that that episode, trying to figure it out from our own vantage, our own generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've written five novels, all set in California, three of them in the Valley, and there's not a one that doesn't delve in some way with the Armenian experience, which is the experience of all folks coming here. I mean, everyone came here for the land. Okay, it was the land, mm-hmm. and and I think some of the more beautiful parts of your of your novels are when you're reckoning with the land. Well, I've written three books set in the Central Valley, Bloodvine, uh, and then River Big, which is my second book. Then uh, Waiting for Lipschitz at Chateau Marmont, which is set both in Los Angeles and in Fresno. You're right. I just read Waiting for Lipschitz, and it's a it's basically examining two riders, one who leaves the mess of LA and comes to the valley and goes deep into the orchards and tries to carve out a living in a kind of trailer. And he's growing a, this incredible array of vegetables and fruits and canning them and all this other. And he's trying to get his other friend, who is a screenwriter, to come here to a place that's more authentic than Los Angeles. And he's examining the contempt that the city has for places like Fresno and the Valley and this kind of willful blindness to what is is done here, what is grown here, the kind of epic singular landscape that is here. I want you to read just a bit of how you deal with the land in Waiting for Lipschitz at Chateau Marmont. I did want to add, in case it wasn't clear, that the narrator and the main character, whose name is Hirschman, are both born and raised in Los Angeles. And so the narrator and almost everyone in Los Angeles is looking at Fresno with that contempt. So here's a a little, uh, just a few sentences. Hirschman comes to, he actually is going to San Francisco and and he he stops in Fresno and goes to the Forestier Underground Garden. And he has a kind of religious conversion there. So he decides to stay the night in Fresno. And this is a little passage that I describes the next day after his visit to the garden. He checked into a seedy motel right off of the 99 and drove willy-nilly out in the country the whole of the next day, passing one vineyard and orchard and row crop after another, so deep and so many and so endlessly, it was as though he'd segued into a parallel world with no way out. Not that if he were ever stuck there, he would have cared to exit, because mile after endless mile of that lush horizontality was affecting him like a hypnotic, so much so that at one point he seriously considered pulling over and settling beneath a tree or a vine for a nap, even though it hadn't hit noon and he'd had an exceptional night's sleep. Yeah, that's that's this place, trying to describe it, um, just going deep into this this thing where you're, you're all alone sometimes. Yeah. And yet it almost feels like uh, you're, you're trespassing into something that is not yours, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the obvious thing to say for any third generation Armenian American writer growing up in this place is, ah, they hear Soroyan in that. Um, 
How does Soroyan influence you as a writer? I don't think there's any escaping Soroyan's beautifully elemental writing. You know, he always brings you home as a writer. Of course, he had dazzlingly adventurous writing early on, especially early on in his career. And in fact, it was always part of his writing life. Daring Young Man was an avant-garde. I mean, people don't understand it that way, Soroyan this way now. They don't characterize his writing as such. But The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze was an avant-garde short story. And he continued in uh, writing very um, interesting and ingenious short stories through in the entirety of his life, almost till he died. But what, he, what I think that uh, captured me as a kid, mostly, was just the simple stories, the Aram stories. I grew up at 3440 El Monte Way, which is right two, there in his neighborhood. Right, yep. right. Yeah. He was down at 3240 or something like that. It was two blocks away. He was long gone before, you know, when I was growing up there. But Saroy's shadow was everywhere. You know, he's the first writer I knew. And I hadn't even read him and I knew of him. People talked yeah. about him. So um, his voice, the sincerity, the honesty, the simplicity, the imagination, the groundedness of it, I think was my first uh, lesson in writing. He was my first mentor and is my mentor to this day. Yeah. I find that even if I'm trying to write a very interesting and challenging and complicated sentence, eventually I'll wind down to soaring like simplicity, I find this over and over in my writing. Obviously, we're very different writers, and I would never compare, you know, Dane to compare myself with him. I mean, he was one of America's truly preternaturally gifted writers. But still, his his ethos, his way of going, I think, affected me throughout my writing life. Yeah, I think that's very much the way I feel, too. You know, Soroyan also dealt with kind of the madness of the Armenian experience here. I mean, a certain craziness couldn't help but seep into the experience after everyone had lost everyone back in the old country. Mm -hmm. And and he, he dealt with that madness with comedy and laughter and, and, and also tragedy, too. But there was a madness that ran through the Soroyan clan. We kind of all knew that. I remember as a mm -hmm. kid growing up. There was a woman who would walk up and down Blackstone Avenue. Her name was Burjui Soroyan, and we called her Blackstone Birdie. And um, as furious as Soroyan would pedal his bicycle through town, she would march down Blackstone, up and down the whole of it. You know, she was trim, fit, and crazy as heck. I know that because out of feeling sorry for her, whatever, my mom would hire her to uh, iron our clothes. And then she would sometimes babysit us, so, which was kind of a strange experience. But do you recall Bertie Soroyan? And did Bertie Soroyan stand for some kind of character in the Armenian-American experience here in Fresno? I remember my parents talking about her in quiet tones, and there was a kind of embarrassment of this woman. We knew that she had been affected, that she had she something had gone awry. I think there wasn't an Armenian that had arrived here. Of course, she hadn't arrived here. She was here. But there wasn't an Armenian that had arrived here that didn't have, you know, didn't wasn't plagued by some degree of madness. How can you go through what they went through and watch what they saw 
not just losing loved ones, but literally losing a home of 2,500 years. Uh, it's almost unthinkable. So I think that people were very um, saddened by the madness that they saw around them, yet were very accepting of it and tried their best to to bring those people back into the fold and give them some kind of um, a foundation or footing. Right. Yep. I remember... I remember this very vividly at the Armenian old age home. My mother would go there every Sunday and sit with these genocide survivors. And many of them were mad and or had very peculiar eccentric ways of uh, behaving. But she understood. She understood what they had gone through and tried to embrace them. With all that said, they were full of the most um, unexpected joy and, and reverie uh, for life as yeah. you recall during our great armenian picnics back then oh yeah at the fairgrounds yes. uh floating down riding down the, the the hills of the fairgrounds yeah uh, on our magic carpets which, which were made of cardboard when richard agopian was uh singing uh, it's a lie. It's a lie. The whole world is a lie. Yes, yes. I think this tees up very nicely your two readings. Um, the first one is Five Right Pairs and then the Armenian and the Armenian. So I can't wait, wait to hear both of them. Thank, Thank you, you, Aris. So Thank you so much, Mark. Let's listen now as Fresno writer Aris Janigian reads William Soroyan's Five Ripe Pears. Five Ripe Pears. If old man Pollard is still alive, I hope he reads this, because I want him to know I am not a thief and never have been. Instead of making up a lie, which I could have done, I told the truth and got a licking. I don't care about the licking because I got a lot of them in grammar school. It was part of my education. Some of them I deserved and some I didn't. The licking Mr. Pollard gave me I didn't deserve. And I hope he reads this because I'm going to tell him why. I couldn't tell him that day because I didn't know how to explain what I knew. I am glad I haven't forgotten, though, because it is pretty important. It was about spring pears. The trees grew in a yard protected by a spike fence, but some of the branches grew beyond the fence. I was six, but a logician. A fence, I reason, can protect only that which it encloses. Therefore, I said, the pears growing on the branches beyond the fence are mine, if I can reach them. And I couldn't. Love of pears, though, encouraged effort. I could see the pears, and I knew I wanted them. I did not want them only for eating, which would have been barbaric. I wanted them mostly for wanting them. I wanted pears these being closest at the time and most desirable. More though I wanted wanting and getting, I invented means. It was during school recess and the trees were two blocks from the school. 
I was thirsty for the sweet fluids of growing fruit and for things less tangible. It is not stealing, I said. It was adventure, also art, also religion, this sort of theft being a form of adoration, and it was exploration. I told the Hebrew boy Isaacs I was going to the trees, and he said it was stealing. This meant nothing, or it meant that he was afraid to go with me. I did not bother at the time to investigate what it meant and went running out of the school grounds, down the street. Peralta, I think it was. In minutes, I did not know how long recess endured, but I knew it never endured long, certainly never long enough. Recess should endure forever, was my opinion. Running to pairs as a boy of six is any number of classically beautiful things, music and poetry, and maybe war. I reached the trees breathless, but alert and smiling. The pears were fat and ready for eating and for plucking from limbs. They were ready. The sun was warm. The moment was a moment of numerous clarities, air, body, and mind. Among the leaves I saw the pears, fat and yellow and red, full of it, the stuff of life, from the sun, and I wanted. It was a thing they could not speak about in the second grade because they hadn't found words for it. They spoke only of the easiest things, but pears were basic and not easy to speak of except as pears. If they spoke of pears at all, they would speak of them only as pears, so much a dozen, not as shapes of living substance, miraculously, strange, exciting, and marvelous. They would think of them apart from the trees, and apart from the earth, and apart from the sun, which was stupid. They were mine if I could reach them, but I couldn't. It was lovely enough only to see them, but I had been looking at them for weeks. I had seen the trees when they had been bare of leaf. I had seen the coming of leaves, the coming of blossoms. I had seen the blossoms falling away before the pressure of the hard green shapes of unripe pears. Now the pears were ripe and ready, and I was ready. I had seen, and the pears were mine, from God. But it was not to eat. It was to touch and feel and know the pear of life, the sum of it, which would decay. It was to know and to make immortal. A thief can be both an artist and a philosopher, and probably should be both. I do not know whether I invented the philosophy to justify the theft, or whether I denied the existence of theft 
in order to invent the philosophy. I know I was deeply sincere about wanting the right pairs, and I know I was determined to get them and to remain innocent. Afterwards, when they made a thief of me, I weakened and almost believed I was a thief, but it was not so. I laughed standing beneath the pear boughs, but it was not the laughter of one who destroys and wastes. It was the laughter of one who creates and preserves. An artist is one who looks and sees, and all who have vision are not unblind. I saw the pears. I saw them first with my eyes, and little by little I saw them with every part of my body and with all my heart. Therefore, they were mine. Also, because they existed on branches growing beyond the fence. A tragic misfortune of youth is that it is speechless when it has most to say, and a sadness of maturity is that it is garrulous when it has forgotten where to begin and what language to use. Oh, we have been well educated in error, all right. We at least know that we have forgotten. I couldn't reach them, so I tried leaping, which was and is splendid. At first I leap with the idea of reaching a branch and lowering it to myself, but after I had leaped two or three times, I began to leap because it was splendid to leap. It was like pears being more than pears. It was to get a little way off the earth, upward, inwardly, and outwardly, and then to return suddenly to it, with a sound, to be flesh and more than flesh, full of it, and I leaped many times. I was leaping when I heard the school bell ring, and I remember that at first it sickened me, because I knew I was late. A moment afterwards, though, I thought nothing of being late, having as justification both the right pairs and my discovery of leaping. I knew it was a reasonable bargain. I forget what they were teaching that day in the second grade, but I believe it was hardly more important than my wanting and getting right pairs and finding out about leaping upward through pear boughs. Wholly speechless, though, I didn't stop to think they would ask me, and I would not have the words to say it. I only knew I knew. I got five pears by using a dead tree twig. There were many more to have, but I chose only five, those that were most ready. One I ate, four I took to class, arriving ten minutes late. A normal man is no less naive at six than at sixty, but few men are normal. Many are seemingly civilized. Four pairs I took to class, showing them as the reason for lateness. I do not remember what I said, if I said anything, but the right pairs I showed. This caused an instantaneous misunderstanding and I knew I was being taken for a thief, which was both embarrassing 
and annoying. I had nothing to say because I had the pairs. They were both the evidence and the justification. And I felt bewildered because the pairs to Miss Larkin were only the evidence. I had hoped she would have more sense being a teacher and one who had lived long. She was severe and said many things. I understood only that she was angry and inclined toward the opinion that I should be punished. The details are blurred, but I remember sitting in the school office feeling somewhat a thief, waiting for Mr. Pollard, our principal. The pears were on his table, now certainly only evidence. They were cheerless, and I was frightened. There was nothing else to do, so I ate a pear. It was sweet, sweeter than the one I'd eaten by the tree. The core remained in my hand, lingering there in a foolish way. I could not invent an artful thing to do with the core and began fearfully to think, Apple core, what for, Baltimore, and so on. A core should be for throwing, but there were walls around me and windows. I ate also the core, having only in my hand a number of seeds. These I pocketed, thinking of growing pear trees of my own. One pear followed another because I was frightened and disliked feeling a thief. It was an unesthetic experience because I felt no joy. Mr. Pollard came at last. His coming was like the coming of doom, and when he coughed, I thought the whole world shook. He coughed a number of times, looked at me severely a number of times, and then said, I hear you have been stealing pears. Where are they? I imagine he wanted to eat a pear and consequently felt very much ashamed of myself because I had none to give him. But I suppose he took it the other way around and believed I was ashamed because I was a thief who had been caught. Then I knew I would be punished because I could see him taking advantage of my shame. It was not pleasant either to hear him say that I had stolen because I hadn't. I saw the pears before they were pears. I saw the bare tree twigs. I saw the leaves and the blossoms. And I kept seeing the pears until they were ready. I made them. The ripe ones belonged to me. I said, I ate them. It is a pity I could not tell him I hadn't stolen the pears because I had created them, but I knew how to say only that which others expected me to say. You ate the pears, he said? It seemed to me that he was angry. Nevertheless, I said, yes, sir. How many pears, he said? Four, I said. You stole four pears, he said, and then ate them? No, sir, I said, five. 
one I ate by the tree. Everything was tangled up, and I knew I wouldn't be able to get out of it. I couldn't think of a thing to say that was my own, and all I could do was answer questions in a way that would justify his punishing me, which he did. He gave me a sound licking with a leather strap, and I cried for all I was worth. It didn't hurt so much as my crying made out that it hurt, but I had to cry because it seemed very strange to me that no one would even faintly understand why I picked the five pears and carried four of them to class when I could have eaten them instead and made up a little lie about helping a stranger find a street or something like that. I know Miss Larkin is dead, but if old man Pollard is still alive, I hope he reads this, because I am writing it for him, saying now that I did not steal the pears. I created them and took four to class because they were beautiful, and I wanted others to see them as I saw them. No hard feelings, Mr. Pollard, but I thought I ought to tell you how it really was with me that day. That was Fresno writer Aris Janigian reading William Soroyan's Five Ripe Pears. One of the things I, I thought about in the reading about Five Ripe Pears and then hearing your full read of it today, Aris, yeah. is uh, thinking back to the first story that we did in this series, Summer of the Beautiful White Horse. Mm-hmm. The thread of the story of Summer of the Beautiful White Horse is honesty. The family is known for their traditions. Mm-hmm. The family is known for being honest. All the while, the cousin never cops to stealing the horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and similarly, uh, the protagonist in Five Right Pairs, as he says at the beginning, you know, I'm a, I was a logician. Uh, yeah. And he was, but, but on a deeper level, he was very philosophical about it. And um, he stole the pears, but then convinces himself that he didn't steal the pears. You know, I created the pears. And yet mm-hmm. he did. So there's this, this fascinating kind of duality that, it, that exists there. So am I drawing any comparisons across threads that make any sense that are worth talking about? I don't see it that way. Yeah. I don't see it that way, though. I, I can see it. I can hear your point, and I definitely think that's what you can draw from. I don't think the story pairs is about that at all. Okay. I think the, pair, I think the pairs is a story of um, what it means to create a story. Cool. It's actually a parable. Yeah, so that's how I see it. It's a story that is written to other writers of his uh, with his kind of ethic, saying that we stand in solidarity as artists. We belong to a single tribe, and we see the pair before the pair is even there. We see it through, you know, when it's dropped its leaf, when it's gone dormant in the winter fog. We see it when it blooms. We see it when the first little green pear comes out. And we see it all the way to its fruition. And then it is ours. And I think when he picks it, what he is doing, he's picking it with the aim of delivering it and giving it to somebody. 
And this is the writer giving his story to the world. And in Saroyan's case, he wanted to let other writers know that your story will be rejected. In this case, the kid's called a thief. But it will be rejected. It may be neglected. But you should own what you did. So I kind of see it as a parable in that respect. You know, David, that's a your question is really interesting, though, because thievery, what's theft, uh, uh, a family's name, um, shame, these are all themes that come out, and they're, they're big. I mean, Eris and I used to trade this book back and forth. It was a book of Armenian parables, and it was a lot of it was about reputation and how many different ways, dozens of ways you could lose your reputation, and not for a short time, <laughs> forever, for life. So there were things like when an ox dies— its skin is left behind. When a man dies, his name is left behind. Or there was another one, from mouth to mouth it goes, and on and on it grows. You know? <laughs> um, or or, or it's, it's better to lose your eye than to lose your name. Mm. And so I remember being at these picnics, and these Armenian ladies, the older ones, remember Aris, they would sit in those aluminum chairs, and they'd have their <laughs> nylons half rolled up, right? Yeah, yeah. Or rolled down. Um, rolled down, yeah. And, and they would be gossiping all, all day long, okay? And even when the when Richard Hagopian was playing his oud, they'd be gossiping. And I remember once they were pointing to this young boy in the shish kebab line, and they said, see that boy over there? He's the Chamich Goch's grandson. Well, Chamich <laughs> Goch meant the raisin stealer. Stealer. So... This young boy's grandfather, probably 60, 70 years ago, had stolen a crate of raisins. And all those years later, the boy was referred to as the grandson of the raisin stealer. <laughs> so, so, so theft, yes. Stealing, yes. Shame, shame, shame. Amot, amot is the word we had for shame. It's one of the first words a kid yeah, who true. learned Armenian, right? Yeah, true. So in a certain way, the analogy is probably more to the the pomegranate trees, mm-hmm. uh, which raise the questions of who really owns those trees and owns that fruit. Is it the landowner who has the deed or the people who put all the work and sweat into it and appreciate the beauty of the pomegranates and all that stuff? Like all great writers, the the one story that they tell has multiple layers and readings and a great story can accommodate them all. And I think that The Five Right Pairs, the reason I wanted to read it, because I think it kind of speaks to Saroy's aesthetic of writing, as well as his announcement to the rest of the writers, other writers, that, look, we're in a spe- special group here and do not expect that we will be treated in any way other than the principal and the teacher has treated this little boy. That's a deep truth from Soroyan and from Aris Janigian. And Aris, I think that serves as an opportunity for you to tee up the second work you're going to read, which is The Armenian and the Armenian. What should we know about this story? I guess the only thing I would say is it's important for people to be mindful that he wrote that story in New York in 1935. So it was a mere 20 years from the from the genocide. It was near to him 
than 9-11 is to us today. And in fact, in the original edition in Inhale, Exhale, he has New York 1935. So that's the only thing I would think the reader uh, might, might, might like to know to give it context. Let's listen now as Fresno writer Aris Janigian reads William Soroyan's The Armenian and the Armenian. The Armenian and the Armenian. In the city of Rostov, I passed a beer parlor late at night and saw a waiter in a white coat who was surely an Armenian. So I went in and said in our language, How are you? God destroy your house. How are you? I don't know how I could tell he was an Armenian, but I could. It is not the dark complexion alone, nor the curve of nose, nor the thickness and abundance of hair, nor is it even the way the living eye is set within the head. There are many with the right complexion and their right curve of nose, and the same kind of hair and eyes. But these are not Armenian. Our tribe is a remarkable one, and I was on my way to Armenia. Well, I am sorry. I am deeply sorry that Armenia is nowhere. It is mournful to me that there is no Armenia. There is a small area of land in Asia Minor that is called Armenia, but it is not so. It is not Armenia. It is a place. There are plains and mountains and rivers and lakes and cities in this place, and it is all fine. It is all no less fine than all the other places of the world, but it is not Armenia. There are only Armenians, and these inhabit the earth, not Armenia. Since there is no Armenia, gentlemen, there is no America, and there is no England, and no France, and no Italy. There is only the earth, gentlemen. So I went into the little Russian beer parlor to greet a countryman, an alien in a foreign land. Vai, he said, with that deliberate intonation of surprise which makes our language and our way of speech so full of comedy. You? Meaning, of course, I, a stranger. My clothes, for instance, my hat, my shoes, and perhaps even the small reflection of America in my face. How did you find this place? Thief, I said with affection. I have been walking. What is your city? Where are you born? In Armenian, where did you enter the world? Mush, he said. Where are you going? What are you doing here? You are an American. I can tell from your clothes. Mush, I love that city. I can love a place I have never been, a place that no longer exists, whose inhabitants have been killed. It is the city my father sometimes visited 
as a young man. Jesus, it was good to see this black Armenian from Mush. You have no idea how good it is for an Armenian to run into an Armenian in some far place of the world. And a guy in a beer parlor at that. A place where men drink. Who cares about the rotten quality of the beer? Who cares about the flies? Who, for that matter, cares about the dictatorship? It is simply impossible to change some things. Vi, he said, Vi, slowly, with deliberate joy, Vi. And you speak the language? It is amazing that you have not forgotten. And he brought two glasses of the lousy Russian beer. And the Armenian gestures meaning so much. The slapping of the knee and roaring with laughter. The cursing, the subtle mockery of the world and its big ideas. The word in Armenian, the glance, the gesture, the smile. And through these things, the swift rebirth of the race. Timeless and again strong, though years have passed, though cities have been destroyed, fathers and brothers and sons killed, places forgotten, dreams violated, living hearts blackened with hate. I should like to see any power of the world destroy this race, this small tribe of unimportant people whose history is ended, whose wars have all been fought and lost, whose structures have crumbled, whose literature is unread, whose music is unheard, whose prayers are no longer uttered. Go ahead, destroy this race. Let us say that it is again 1915. There is war in the world. Destroy Armenia. See if you can do it. Send them from their homes into the desert. Let them have neither bread nor water. Burn their houses and their churches. See if they will not live again. See if they will not laugh again. See if the race will not live again when two of them meet in a beer parlor 20 years after and laugh and speak in their tongue. Go ahead. See if you can do anything about it. See if you can stop them from mocking the big ideas of the world, you sons of bitches. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. Go ahead and try to destroy them. That was Fresno writer Aris Janigian reading William Soroyan's The Armenian and the Armenian. Aris Janigian, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me as part of this wonderful series. And Mark Arax, of course, thank you very much. David, it's good working with you on this. This has been The Time of Our Life. In case you're wondering about our theme music, it was composed by Fresno native Ross Bogdasarian and his first cousin and long-life friend, William Soroyan. 
The melody is based on an Armenian folk song. Special thank you to Fresno writer Aris Janigian for reading and sharing his insight. Thanks to Mark Arax for his collaboration in this series. Thanks also to Alice Daniel and the entire Valley Public Radio news team. And special thank you to Mimi Coulter and Stanford Libraries for allowing us permission to broadcast these stories. For Valley Public Radio, I'm David Aus. Come out of my house.